know that we're in the silly season of the election when our first story for discussion is about a hyphen, but so be it. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I am here with an energized crew of editors, Laura Johnston, Chris Bernowski, <laughs> Jade Cahoon. Welcome to Thursday. Hey. <laughs> coffee, coffee, coffee. Need coffee. It's a uh, Thursday before a long weekend, so I feel like we're all these weeks always feel longer than regular weeks. Well, if you're not energized just now, and COVID fatigue. That too. If you're, if you're not energized now, these topics will get you there. Let's, <laughs> let's begin. Should people with hyphenated names be worried about whether they can vote in November? Jane Cahoon, this should be a really simple answer. But given all that's going on with elections and the efforts to stop certain people from voting, my antenna is way up on this one. <laughs> so so take us through. Two years ago, Secretary of State Frank LaRose took the hyphens out of names in the voter database. Why and why could that be difficult? Yeah, I was going to ask you whether you wanted to throw the flag now or after I explain all this. Okay? <laughs> so. Yeah, he put out this manual in 2018 that basically says when the workers input the names in the voter registration database, they are to leave out hyphens and and other punctuation, apparently, like if you have an apostrophe in your name, like O'Brien or something like that. But why? Um, You know, they are not really telling us specifically why other than maybe some sort of uniformity issue, which doesn't make sense to me because the, the reason this whole thing came up was a reader contacted us because she has a hyphenated name. She moved from Cuyahoga County to Lorraine County and she updated her address with the BMV. And then she got a notice from the board of elections saying your name doesn't match, you know, your driver's license doesn't match your voter registration. And so she responded to the notice and, and she, you know, let them know. But she was like, what, what, you know, is this more than an inconvenience? Should I be worried about this? And the elections officials we talked to, Frank LaRose's office, as well as a couple of uh, elections directors said, no, you shouldn't have any problem. You're not going to be forced to vote provisionally or, or anything like that. Um, so we're kind of still left wondering a little bit, like, why, why do this? All right. Well, one thing, I'm grateful to the woman who wrote to us. She resp- was responding to a column I wrote last week announcing our series where we're explaining how the election systems work because there's so much anxiety. She sent this note and it was like, what? what's going on here? And I still, I, I'm still baffled why it's a solution in search of a problem. And every time elections officials do that, it, it raises serious questions. If the whole purpose of matching up the voter database to the driver license database is for verification purposes. Why would you change the standard of one so it doesn't match the other? And he did it two years ago, you know, with no notice, nobody knew. And suddenly now people are getting these notices saying, hey, your name doesn't match. And it's causing even more anxiety. So I'm I'm not really buying the the line we got. It was very aggressive from every elections official Andrew talked to. Oh, no, no, there won't be any problems. Like, yeah, really? (laughs) You know, why do it? Why? I mean, and the fact that Frank LaRose won't explain it 
just it just raises suspicions. Why mess with something that clearly was not broken and cause all this fear among voters that they won't be able to cast a ballot? Right. I mean, there's already concern over things like how they match the signatures on your, you know, your ballot application to your to your signature on file and all that. So, you know, this seems like it could present some sort of matching issue. And it just um, yeah, especially since you show your driver's license when you go to vote. Well, and and, and to just say it's not going to be a problem uh-huh. doesn't really cut it. You know, I right. mean, it's like. Why did you do it? Why why would and two years ago without telling anybody you were doing it? Why did you do it? I you know, we were talking uh, by email this morning. We need to check with other states. I mean, is this something that we're going to see a pattern by secretaries of state who are in one party doing to their states? (laughs) Was this part of a playbook? It just doesn't pass the sniff test. So we're going to have to be very close attention come election day. Yeah, I I was thinking about this whole thing. You know, John Houston, the lieutenant governor, who used to be a secretary of state, he's been all over this technology issue and making things uniform and communicate with each other and trying to make technology work for the Ohio citizen. And this just doesn't seem, I mean, I realize the secretary of state is an independently elected office, but this just seems to be like an outlier here. And where is Laura Johnston on this conversation? She had a whole point to make about how this sticks it to women. It does, because women are the ones who hyphenate their names after they get married. And it's a really small percentage. Um, the New York Times puts it at about 1.5% of women who have hyphenated or double last names. But yeah, I mean, I know this is an issue for the hyphen or the the apostrophe too, but it does seem like this is going to come down harder on women and um, just makes it harder to vote. Yeah. I, I I think we need more answers on this from everybody. There has to be some assurance that what he's done has not made it more difficult to vote and just saying it's not going to be a problem. doesn't cut it. What are the safeguards that it's not going to be a problem? People need to hear the assurances. So thank you to the to the woman who sent that information in because nobody knew about it before she did. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Everyone has lots of questions about the quality of the education students are getting when learning from home. So why is the Ohio Senate looking to stop school testing and report cards that would give us an idea of whether remote learning works. Chris Ranowski, I, I get the general thought here that education's a mess, so we shouldn't do this, but I don't know that we've ever needed a rating system more to understand what's going on. I'm sure Laura Johnston will want to weigh in here <laughs> about, about whether she'd like to have a rating of what's going on with her school system. So, so Chris, take us through. What is the thinking here on on halting this stuff so uh, just some background the the bipartisan bill would allow for the the state to seek federal approval for canceling testing uh, as schools seek to recoup learning losses from the sudden switch to remote learning the bill would also continue a freeze on state report cards yearly performance assessments that have um that these these performance assessments that have heavy consequences for school districts so I think the the reasoning and the the idea behind this is that this there's going to be a a sort of great range of success and failure among you know these various things that we're experimenting with 
to try to get students to learn remotely. And it's really kind of a mixed bag. You know, you have some some school districts that are doing hybrid stuff. You have some school districts that are going completely online. And so I, I think the idea behind it is that there's no it wouldn't be like an objective measurement of progress for education. Because All right, but stop. Everybody's but stop. learning at a different rate. But stop. Oh, it mm. is an objective measurement. Right. I mean, you're <laughs> taking all of these kids that are learning through different systems and giving them the same test. I mean, this would be the most useful information we could get about what works and what doesn't work. I this it just floors me. I mean, I could see not holding the, the school districts accountable. Right. But if you found that a third of the districts really struggled and their kids are behind, maybe the state could put some money together to help those districts catch those kids up. It's not the district's fault. Nobody's blaming the districts for getting caught short by the coronavirus. Everybody got caught. But why wouldn't you want to know what worked, what didn't work? So you're right. So what you're suggesting is that they should, they should do the measurement, but not hold it against the districts. Like, I, I like I feel like what you're saying is right. Like what what they the information that they could gather by trying to sort of measure the failure and success rate of what they're doing would give them a very clear picture. Maybe it's a picture they don't want to see because well, yeah. because because what it's because <laughs> what it's really going to illustrate is a vast inequity in learning based on where you live, what zip code you might be in what your property taxes are like and all of that stuff. And that's a lot of ugly stuff that they don't want to see. Let's go to our resident mom, Laura Johnson. (laughs) I mean, the whole point of education is to teach children. There's a whole lot of bureaucracy here, but these kids need to learn how to read whether they are going into a school building or not. And I think we need to know where they're at. Right. If they said, if they said it was the logistics, like you can't do testing remotely, you know, you could say, okay, we'll do the testing once the kids come back to school, whenever that is. I just, I, you know, I'm a taxpayer, you know, and I live in a district with really high taxes. I would love to know if mm-hmm. it works. I mean, it, and I wouldn't criticize any district because it doesn't work, but, but man, this is a gigantic experiment in, in education. Let's get the information. And instead, it's like, no, let's put our heads in the sand and we don't want right. to know it's what like, if, well, if we, It's like when you check your, you don't check your bank account because you know you're broke. Like you just don't want to worry about it. So you don't want to know it. And, and that seems. Is that the way you, is that the way you do your finances? Like, yeah, that's exactly the way I do my finances. Come on. <laughs> but but I, I was going to say about this idea about testing, our school district is bringing in kids to test in very small groups because they want to see their baseline um, for this year. So every kid is going in for like 90 minutes in one day in September. They're spacing them out over weeks. Um, so they are bringing them in to do some testing for the school district, but it's not going to be state standardized testing right now. Can I, can I flip this out there? I mean, there, there is a legitimate argument to be made about the effectiveness of standardized testing in education that I, I, you know, I feel like that's a pretty universal, uh, universally accepted idea that, you know, that teachers worry about its effectiveness, whatever. This might actually be a situation where standardized testing results in something that is useful. That, that that actually has a, a plausible impact on what might be the future of education for the foreseeable future. And and to to sort of limit our ability, you know, we're seeing this at every level of government that our inability to collect data and information about the systems that are being forced to respond to this pandemic 
is is really hampering the public's ability to see the effectiveness of it. I mean, you can make that argument about public right. health, public health systems, all that stuff, but you know, to not be able to look at our edu- our our like how these things are working is. I think going to be kind of a problem. Yeah. Jane Cahoon, we've already decided our question for the governor today was going to be about the vaccine. I don't know, man, this is a hot topic. <laughs> Maybe we should rethink this and hit them up on uh, testing. Let's, let's talk after the podcast we'll is over. Talk. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How many cases have we had of late in which somebody kills a family member than him or herself? And are the cases similar? Chris Ranowski, we wondered about this, given a pretty high profile case over last weekend in Shaker Heights. And there were even more of them than we thought. Uh, Evan McDonald took a look at what makes these cases similar or different. What did he find? Yeah, so it's it was surprising to see this actually kind of written out because these things kind of tend to happen in a vacuum. And, you know, as we step back and took a look at this phenomenon, we found out that we've had something like five of these happen in the past four months in Northeast Ohio. And there are a lot of, of things that are different about these cases, but there's also some similarities. And so we set Evan out to talk to some experts about this and they came back with some, some, pretty fascinating information. Some of it, you know, if you follow crime and stuff like that and, and, you know, it kind of makes sense, but they call these things like intimate partner homicides and, and murder suicides, but they also have this term that I had not really heard of before, which is, is it familicide or, but they call these killers family annihilators, which was something I have never, ever heard before. And not surprising in this is that men, primarily are the people that carry out most of these killings. Um, and many of the men who do have a history of domestic violence toward the women in this, these cases, and there are about maybe a hundred to 200 cases of the, of, of familicide where the kids are also are killed, which was what happened in the Shaker Heights case on Sunday. There's about a hundred to 200 cases of that a, a year. And, the killer in those in those cases, they uh, one of the experts we spoke to said that that they often have suffered some sort of personal humiliation, and they've convinced themselves that deadly violence is beneficial to their family. Like you know, where I'm going to end the suffering. You know, I don't want my children to suffer. I don't. You know, it, it's usually some sort of mental health burden or 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 something that happened in their life. So as we talked about this the last time after this had happened earlier this week we sort of speculated that there might be some pressures from the coronavirus and unemployment and broader mental health issues that are happening specific to this year that are related to it. The other thing that, that they noted is that the increase in gun violence is, you know, more people have guns. So there are, you know, tools of, of killing that are sort of, sort of readily, more readily available to people who are, I mean, it's like we talk about suicide and, and, you know, they say that the more guns in the community means more suicides and, and, you know, same goes for homicides. So that's, that's, they're saying that, that the fact that we also have a lot of guns in our communities might also contribute to this. So there's, there's just a lot, there's a lot that goes into this, but you know, there it's, it's, you know, it's layered. It's sort of like it's mental health issues, domestic violence, humiliation, access to guns. You know, it's just there's a lot of things that go into, you know, why these things happen. We should point out in the Sunday case, there's no evidence of domestic violence. There was there was the 
guy's dad told us that he did suffer from depression and had suffered some setbacks in the uh, early part of the year. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How many cities in America saw bigger hits to their economies by the coronavirus than Cleveland did? Or Johnston, this one surprised me because we don't really have the most robust economy. So, you know, you would think that we couldn't take that big a hit because it wasn't that robust to begin with. But take a hit, we did. Yeah, we did. Only New York, Las Vegas, and Boston have done worse in terms of job losses than Cleveland. And that's a 12% decline from July 2019 to July of this year. And that's coming from a Cleveland State uh, University study. So that's the bad news. The good news is that Cleveland might be in a really good spot to recover. The director of urban theory and analytics at uh, CSU, he ticked off a number of reasons we could do well with business in the future. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that people can work from home and that companies have realized that over the last couple of months. So the idea is that Ohio did pretty well with the pandemic response. We were never super hard hit. So it's a safe place to be. And then uh, another vein of safety, we're void of hurricanes and wildfires, which is Another plus for Cleveland. We have a great lake, no oceans. Although that really doesn't have anything to do with the suffering of our economy. No, the, the, but they're saying we could recover because people could move here uh, and not wanting to be on the coast anymore. The uh, and One of the reasons that uh, Richie Preparin and the guy who did the study at CSU said we could really come back strong, right, is because of health care. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, those jobs were lost because people stopped getting procedures and now right the, like the white collar and white coat industries in cleveland took a 19.3 percent hit according to this study but accommodation and food services this is no surprise had the biggest decline of jobs twenty eight thousand six hundred jobs so i mean that's a big number yeah it is it was it was another depressing state i do think downtown cleveland has a long-term problem that will not come back quickly but we'll have to wait and see it's this week in the cle Why is Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose telling the Ohio Supreme Court that Kanye West's presidential bid does not belong on the Ohio ballot? Jane Cahoon, this is one of those election shenanigans, uh, conspiracy theories out there that Kanye West seeking to be on the ballot raises suspicions. But Frank LaRose doesn't want him there. What uh, what's the issue? (laughs) Well, you know, I don't know that I would call it a conspiracy theory. I mean, I think it's been pretty well documented that (laughs) Republicans. That it's it's a real conspiracy, not a theory. Well, (laughs) that that Republican operatives have been helping West get on the ballot in in various swing states. And many people suspect that this is a ploy to siphon votes from Joe Biden. And I mean, that. The, the proof is pretty much there that, that that's what they're doing. But in any event, this is being argued in the Ohio Supreme Court because LaRose did not accept West's petition saying they had fatal defects and West is challenging that in the court. Uh, what what uh, LaRose's staff determined was that the, the signature of West's running mate, who's named Michelle Tidball, uh, and, and information on his original nominating petition and his statement of candidacy didn't match up with, with the paperwork they actually used to circulate the petitions that were signed by voters. So, you know, West's attorney says 
that even though Tidball's signatures might look different on the two documents that she confirmed under oath that they were both hers. And he set aside these paperwork differences saying it's there's no fraud there, so so it shouldn't matter. It'll be interesting to see how quickly the Supreme Court rules on this. The ballots are pretty much ready to go, right? <laughs> yeah, they, they've been kind of expediting this case. I've watched where they've, you know, set, okay, your brief is due this day, your brief is due the next day. So that's what we wrote about yesterday when, when they filed their opposing briefs. So I would think we'll see a decision relatively soon. Yeah, I wonder when they actually print the ballots. They go out in a month. I mean, the earliest ballots go out <laughs> right. in a month. So, right, right. They, you it's know, and it takes a while to print, you know, millions of ballots. So it'll be interesting to see if they can get this done. I have a quick question. This is Chris Wernowski. If LaRose really wanted to get West out of the, the electoral process, maybe he could claim that West is, West's last name is the hyphenated West Kardashian. They <laughs> 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 get him cost. <laughs> yep, they got to get those hyphens out of there. Okay, it's this week in the CLE. It's getting national attention, so we might as well talk about it. What did a Cleveland artist use as his unusual medium for a portrait of President Donald Trump? Chris Ranowski, we had one of the strangest journalism conversations I've ever participated in yesterday in trying to determine what was the proper word to use so that we wouldn't offend people in, in a social context. So I'm putting this one on you, man. You take it away. Explain this one. I will never (laughs) forgive you for this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we, there's a, there's an artist here in Cleveland who go, his name is Stephen Manka and he created a portrait of president Donald Trump using 2020 metal sex toys. The portrait is currently uh, constructed in a studio. It measures 12, 12 by 20 feet. And he uh, launched a Kickstarter campaign to raise uh, money for the project, ultimately aiming at creating a touring installation that would stop by Washington, D.C., Wisconsin, and Dallas ahead of the November presidential election. And he's using the hashtag Dildo Don. It's a, <laughs> I mean, look, from a, from the objective standpoint of art, it's fascinating how he did it. It's interesting. If you haven't seen it, we do have a photo of it on the website. Um, and it is a creative use of these sex toys, but you're right. It did, it did lead to a very interesting conversation about how we were going to refer to these specific toys and, and what, and, you know, and, and certainly I, you know, a lot of emails from some pearl clutchers out in our, in our readership, but it, it's a, uh, yeah, I, I mean, there were people asking, I mean, these are, these are all metal sex toys, by the way, which is, was, was unusual. The people are asking why we're doing it. And it's okay. This is actually a news story. There's a Cleveland artist getting national attention for creating a portrait of the president in a very unusual medium. So, so I, I defended very strongly the, the, reporting and writing of the story where we where we got into trouble was the original version didn't use the term sex toys it used the word from his hashtag which struck me as okay wait wait that's still not really a word that is appropriate in a social circle or for people coming to our website well, it depends on your social circle but yes yeah, yeah. that's true <laughs> so but a we, family news website right, right. <laughs> so we quickly came to 
a consensus on changing it to sex toys. And we removed another word, which led to another interesting conversation on the sliding scale of offensiveness of of words and euphemisms. Anyway, we're done with it. We've done the story. We've discussed it. It's this week in this CLE. Will the flu vaccine provide any protection at all against the coronavirus? Laura Johnston, the uh, in the early part of the the coronavirus, President Donald Trump asked if the if a flu vaccine would work against the coronavirus and was pretty roundly ridiculed for asking it. But now it turns out that the latest flu vaccine does help a little bit. Well, he also said we should drink Lysol, right? But don't do that. Um, <laughs> it might help. So the influenza virus will, the influenza vaccine will not protect you against COVID-19. Like it's not the same vaccine, but um, it could help because uh, there's this new study of more than 90,000 uh, confirmed COVID-19 cases in Brazil. It found that the flu vaccine was associated with lower mortality uh, among those patients. So the risk was 17% lower in an age group of 10 to 19 year olds and 30% less in those 90 and older. So the doctors say it's possible that this vaccine is making the, your immune system stronger. So even if it can't prevent COVID-19, doctors are saying, go get your flu shot. It's just one more reason you should get this protection. Of course, the other very simple idea is that if you have the flu, your body's going to be weak and then you get coronavirus on top of it. You're not in good shape to fight that off. You know, what this story tells me is we don't know jack about this virus. <laughs> Only you know, look, this one. And, and, I mean, really, because it, it was the flu vaccine does nothing. The flu vaccine does nothing. Now it does something. Don't wear masks. Don't wear masks. Wear a mask to protect others. Then it's wear a mask to protect yourself. That, and, and, you know, we did a story early on in this thing about the shingles vaccine. Mm-hmm. I had gotten the shingles vaccine. I'd done research on it and I, and I learned that it's not a normal vaccine, that it, what it does is in old people like me, it greatly increases the number of your T cells, which fight viruses. So I asked, Hey, is this going to help me against the coronavirus? Our reporters talked to some doctors and they said, no, because the T cells don't recognize the virus. Well, I was talking to somebody else who's an expert last week and they said, of course it's going to help you. Yes, they don't recognize it. But once you get it, You've got all these T cells that will go fight it. You're way ahead of the game because you have that vaccine and you got those T cells. It's like, well, so what, what, what about the doctors at the beginning who said it won't make any difference? I'm really glad I got the shingles vaccine. You know, it might help. The flu vaccine helping against this after months of being told it it didn't just throws me. I, I, I don't know why anybody should believe a single word they're told about this virus. Well, that's what's so scary, right? I mean, one of the very scary things. We just don't know. There's just so much we don't know. But you should get the flu vaccine. Even you should though, go get your flu shot. Even and- though in South Africa, which just completed its flu season, they didn't have any flu, really, because everybody was taking precautions against the coronavirus. And lo and behold, wearing a mask keeps you from getting the flu, too. This so is- that raised questions for me about... Do I really need the flu vaccine if I'm if I'm working so hard to avoid the coronavirus? But Laura, you're going to tell me yes, yes, yes. Get the flu well. Vaccine. The experts that we've talked to said that Americans aren't doing as good of a job as South Africans in protecting themselves from the coronavirus, which that is not a shocker. So you know, go get your flu shot, and and the companies are are ready for the influx. They're all gearing up. They're making more. They've expected people to come more and sooner to get it. So well, just, uh, I got just, mine this week. Just tell me this. 
the experts we're talking to, they're not the ones we went to in the spring that told us don't wear a mask. <laughs> I hope. Because yeah, they're I, not experts. They don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> really, Chris Quinn, you are the expert no, on the virus. Right. It's this week in the CLE. Well, Mike DeWine signed the Just Pass bills that would limit his power during pandemics and limit coronavirus lawsuits against businesses. Jane the legislature came back and they got right on the most important issues of the day. They're not repealing HB6. They're trying to stop Mike DeWine from keeping Ohioans safe. And they're trying to stop people who were wronged by businesses in the pandemic from being able to get recompense. So what's going on? Is he going to sign either of these? So I don't know what the governor is going to do, but my prediction is that he's going to sign one of them and veto the other one. Uh, what happened is the Ohio Senate passed a bill on Wednesday meant to protect businesses from coronavirus-related lawsuits uh, by giving them immunity through September 30th of next year. This applies to businesses, schools, healthcare providers, and other employers, as well as healthcare workers. Uh, now, this is the one I think DeWine will probably sign because it doesn't interfere with his authority, and he generally seems supportive of that concept. He's a pro-business kind of guy. Uh, the other bill that I think he's going to veto is the one that they passed Tuesday that would curtail his his power to prevent officials from issuing orders to modify Ohio's election plan or to close houses of worship. Now, his spokesman says, you know, we've never closed houses of worship. What what DeWine's done is just said, you know, it's not wise to congregate, but he's but he's made it clear he wants to protect the, the First Amendment there. In any event, they won't say whether he's going to veto it, but he vetoed another bill where, you know, that would have decriminalized violations of health orders. So that's what I believe he's going to do. You know, you said he's pro-business and that that's why he'd sign the the one. But, the, the, you know, the, there already are protections for business in the law. Right, right. The, to do this makes it harder for the workers who might be mistreated by unscrupulous employers to to seek redress and i it's it's one of those conservative talking points like let's 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 protect the businesses that that's kind of not real and yeah. i i you know i would i would hope that he would think about vetoing it just to say i stand with ohioans the laws are strong enough as they are um i think it's no doubt that he'll he'll veto the other one. It does all speak to though. We finally get these guys back in the state house after a month of doing nothing. And instead of taking up the real business of what's going on in the state, they're doing this kind of nonsense. I mean, HB six remains on the books with very little movement to get rid of it. The, the whole idea of cities collecting income taxes from workers who haven't stepped foot in them for nearly six months remains out there. And it's something the legislature could deal with. There's lots of important issues out there that they're not focused on. The thing they did as soon as they came back was was play these kinds of games, which maybe you'll play to their base, but you don't really have to worry about because they have such gerrymandered districts that the base is happy anyway. It's this week in the CLE. I have no idea how long we've gone because we had major technical difficulties that created a huge gap in here. So I'm going to close this down now. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Chris. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We will be back on Friday to close out a week of news. 